This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. The U.S., count them, one, two, three. We've got three vaccines, Tim, to fight COVID-19. Three vaccines in under a year. <sighs> Just about a year, I think it's fair to say. It's it, phenomenal. It's, it is phenomenal. Nobody doubts that in terms of the development. The problem is, though, I think there is some nervousness about this J&J va- vaccine. We talked about it with the CEO of Northwell Health yesterday because there are concerns, the lower efficacy rate, people are going to be like, I don't want that one. Yeah. I mean, look, people focusing on 72% instead of 95%. But all the health experts tell us that's not the right thing to focus on. Exactly. So let's get into this story. A great one by Bloomberg News healthcare reporter Angelica Levito on the phone in our New York City bureau. Um, Angelica, good to have you here with us. Listen, it's great to have another vaccine, but it's only great if people take it. Exactly. And you brought up some excellent points that we might see some hesitation. There are great benefits with this J&J vaccine. It's refrigerated, so that means that we can get it into rural areas, places that don't have access to these ultra-cold freezers that you need for Pfizer's vaccine. It's also one shot, which is great. You know, you don't have to come back in for a second dose. You're just in and out and you're done with your vaccination. However, we might see some people worried about this 72% efficacy in the U.S. trials versus that 95% for Pfizer and 94% for Moderna. However, all the health experts, like you said, um, they say that you can't compare these trials apples to apples because they were conducted at different times. Of course, J&J's shot had to contend globally with the variants we're seeing in South Africa, um, Brazil, and also J&J's So that gives J&J's vaccine a little bit of an up, right? Because it was playing with some of the variants, correct? It does. And that's something that we have evidence of, that it can work against these variants. And also, it's worth noting that the J&J vaccine did provide complete protection against all COVID-related hospitalization and death, which is what we're trying to solve for. So let's think back to just a couple of months ago when we were having the same conversation, not necessarily about efficacy, but about hesitation when it came to Moderna and Pfizer. What we saw then was Vice President Pence at the time getting his shot on TV, Anthony Fauci, nation's top infectious disease doctor, getting the shot on TV. The problem is all these people have had their shots already, so right. it's not like they can go and get the J&J shot. I, I feel like, Angelica, what we need here is like this big PR campaign coming from leaders saying, hey, this is the shot that I want. But they've already been vaccinated. That's the problem. That's a great point. It's a really, really good point. And we are hearing from Anthony Fauci, for example, who's telling people, get out there and the first shot that becomes available to you, take it, especially if that's J&J. And the Biden administration has been unified in that message. But you're right. They're vaccinated. So we are going to need to see some new faces out there. Hey, I'll get the shot on the radio. How's that? I volunteer. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and we'll be able to see it on YouTube. Yeah, so it's exactly. a good thing. I mean, whether or not you like it, it's coming, the J&J vaccine, because we are expected to hear from President Biden later on about kind of an unusual collaboration between two competing big pharma companies we're talking about J&J Merck working together to produce it. Right. So Merck is going to help J&J manufacture its COVID-19 vaccine. Um, They will equip two facilities to start producing these shots. And 
Later today, we will hear from President Biden about this collaboration. Of course, these two fierce rivals now coming together and sort of describing it as a wartime effort to get shots produced as quickly as possible. When you say as quickly as possible, when they say as quickly as possible, what are we what are we <laughs> thinking here as far as timeline goes? Because Drew Armstrong was on Quick Take earlier today and he said, look, this is the type of thing that takes a long time to get going. Yes, that is a very good point to make because um as soon as possible could be a few months and obviously that's not what we think of when we think of as soon as possible so it could be a while however the companies um, are indicating that this could help J&J quickly deliver on its promise to um, to distribute 100 million doses in the U.S. by the end of June so perhaps this helps us get to that goal right. faster but TBD. Angelica what I don't understand is um, why was it J&J ramping up production to begin with? <laughs> like, we knew it was coming. They had high expectation it was going to get through in terms of FDA, you know, emergency authorization. What the heck was going on? It's a really great question, and I think it's something that a lot of people are wondering because J&J is a massive company with tremendous resources. However, I've seen know- their manufacturing. I've <laughs> spent some time with them. It's pretty impressive. But vaccines, as Alex Gorski, the CEO of Johnson Johnson, told our Bloomberg colleague Riley Griffin yesterday, vaccine production is hard. It takes a lot of energy and it takes everything going exactly right. However, they are saying that they are still on pace to deliver the 20 million shots they've promised by the end of March, which would be a pretty significant ramp up in just a few short weeks. So how quickly do we start to see, I mean, I know the shipments have arrived today. How quickly do we start to see these showing up and where do they show up? And we only have about 30 seconds left. It's um, a great question and it depends. We've heard from states saying this will go to health departments, mass vaccination clinics, the pharmacies will get them. I talked to CVS this morning and they'll start actually putting these shots into arms Friday. So I think it depends on um, you know, different paces across the country, but we right. will see these shots going to arms this week. All right, gonna leave it there. Angelica, thank you so much. Angelica Levito, a healthcare reporter joining us uh, from our bureau right here in New York City. Don't you wonder though, like- Yeah. Because we knew, I mean, months ago, they right. knew. So only having four million ready to go seems like a small number. We're, we're spoiled because we see these numbers in the millions all the time. And I do wonder, like, are you gonna go up to a vaccination site and be like, uh, what am I getting? But remember, I will say one shot, it's one shot. So one dose is, is one inoculation. That's a big deal. And it's a big step forward in terms of, I think, herd immunity helping us get closer to that. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, we've got an update on the current Bloomberg Business Week cover story. Uh, it's about the sneakerheads that have turned Jordans and Yeezys into an asset class. It profiled Joe Hebert, whose West Coast streetwear was buying and reselling sneakers. His story, you might recall last week, had a little bit of a twist in it. It did. We didn't give away the ending, no. but it's kind of like a spoiler alert now. Yeah, and that twist uh, leading to an abrupt action. Let's get the update. With us is Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber on the Axis Line in Brooklyn, along with Bloomberg. Business Week freelance writer Josh Hunt, who wrote the story. He's with us from Portland, Oregon. Joel, talk about an impact. Well, I just feel like saying, like, when last we left our hero, <laughs> um, because nice. so much seems to have transpired then. And um, uh, really, that the story uh, took a took another turn yesterday when um, Nike announced the resignation of Anne Hebert, who was Joe's mother. Um, so, so talk to us about the implications of, of what all has gone down and what it, what it means, Josh. Yeah, I mean, coming into this story, 
you know, uh, one of the one of the big questions was was what does this all mean? You know, from from the moment that I first learned uh, that Joe's mother, that you know, my my main uh, sneaker reselling character was ha- had a mother who was a top executive at Nike. Um, you know, what did that mean? It, it's a very gray area, and and you know, readers of the story uh, will note that we didn't accuse them of any wrongdoing because it's a it's kind of an un, it's it was very unclear um what this meant and uh now we have uh, a little bit more clarity uh what this means now that nike has taken well nike hasn't taken any action now that ann hebert has um decided to resign um but uh uh frankly uh i have to say i'm a little bit surprised because nike uh defended hebert uh, very strongly uh in the piece you know when we went to to them for comments uh, prior to publication. And uh, so, you know, for this to happen so soon after the story landed, I have to think that uh, maybe there was something uh, in the story more than they expected. Hmm. Um, uh, and, and I still wonder what that might be. I mean, to be perhaps determined, Josh, I mean, you got your work cut out for you. In the meantime, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the conversation that, that, that's happening on Twitter right now? Like, what are you hearing from people? Because I've seen that you've uh, been interacting a little bit. Yeah, it's a very interesting time uh, in the sneaker world. I'm hearing, uh, you know, not just from people on Twitter, but uh, another, uh, you know, there's this uh, black-owned sneaker resale uh, platform called Another Lane, uh, run by uh, Adina Jones and her husband, Chad Jones. And and I, uh, you know, in my interview with Adina, uh, when she learned about this twist in the story, she, her quote was, "That's the height of privilege," and um, and you know um, they've been here. They've been getting a lot of uh, uh, positive feedback, uh, you know, from people who've read the story and a lot of support and things like that. And and so on on one side of the the you know inside the sneaker community, those sorts of conversations are going on. And on Twitter, it it's uh, it's really running the gamut from people who, you know, people who have, as they, as they uh, you know, so many people are tweeting, uh, quote tweeting uh, my tweet uh, with pictures of Joe's warehouse and saying, ah, so this is why I can't get Jordans. Ah, so this is why I'm, this is why I'm always taking, this is why I'm always taking an L on the sneakers app, you know. And so, you know, part of it is, is um, obviously people are uh, happy to have some clarity about how this world works. Uh, some people are just, uh, uh, you know, kind of um, luxuriating in blind rage over all the sneakers they haven't been able to buy. Um, well, that, I mean, that, it's totally there's right. Even yeah, a little I, bit, there's even a little bit of conspiracy theorizing happening. You know, some people are taking it farther than we've actually said in the story. Yeah, that, well, as the Internet is wont to do. Um, you know, I think it, it shows the nature of just like how fraught this world actually is and i think we 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 hinted at some of that without really realizing how much we were going to stir the pot or kick the hornet's nest or whatever uh josh but because ultimately like there are there's some class undertones that i think people are talking about there's clearly the racial ones which you indicated and and like that i think like we we only scratched the surface of what all that meant and i think that's been sort of part of the fallout and i think what it really shows now is you know, we effectively our story was about the economics of this, and you know, obviously it plays into the tech side of it, 
how bots can be unleashed to sort of like squirrel away, help squirrel away inventory. And all of that kind of, I think, gets back to this challenge that it actually does face corporate America, or at least parts of corporate America, where you have products like this that can really galvanize attention and also employees who are put in sort of perhaps sometimes uncomfortable positions or, or positions that could be, you know, fraught, I guess. Um, so Josh, when you think about that, I mean, obviously you've been head down in the sneaker world here, but like when you think about the extrapolations of that through corporate America, can, can you kind of theorize like who else is probably dealing with some of these same fraught conversations? And Josh, we just got about 40 seconds. Sure. Uh, what I can say, I mean, without uh, uh, theorizing too much, what's, what's clear to me, um, the part of why this touched such a nerve is that this sneaker world is kind of at the, at the nexus of, you know, it's a, a little bit like the GameStop stuff and the Bitcoin stuff in the sense that it's both a subculture and a market. And so you've got all these uh, people from different class backgrounds, from dis- different racial backgrounds, these, these, uh, this you know, big mix of people coming right. together, trying to be involved in a market, and, um, and you know, all kinds of kind of right. clashes happening. Well, it's incredible. The story goes on, as we said, another another edition of the story. <laughs> hey, Josh, thank you so much. Freelance writer at Bloomberg Business Week from Portland and Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. And Bloomberg Business Week brought to you by SEI. Since its founding 50 years ago, SEI has provided investment managers and asset owners with robust infrastructure platforms and flexible outsourcing solutions. Go to SEIC.com slash IMS. So what is going on in the hallowed halls of old time Wall Street, Tim Stenovec? That's the big question. <laughs> it is. And it's our top story at this hour. Several stories, actually, in the last few days, people coming and going, uh, mostly going, especially from Goldman Sachs. Yeah, that's right. Um, Wall Street poaching is heating up with fintech funds on the hunt. Yeah, exactly. So let's get more from Anders Mellon. He is executive compensation reporter at Bloomberg News, wealth reporter at Bloomberg News, and Sri Natarajan, finance reporter at Bloomberg News. Both are uh, on the phone in New York City. Anders in our New York bureau. And Sri, I got to start with you because that news today, another very senior Goldman executive leaving. Uh, we just heard John Tucker talk about it. Karen Seymour, Goldman senior uh, or general counsel, what's going on with Goldman? It's a great question, Carol. Uh, look at the backdrop. Goldman had a phenomenal 2020. Uh, they've had a good start to the year. Their stock is ripping ever higher, near all-time highs. And yet you're seeing some high-profile departures. It's not unusual to see people leave a firm, a big Wall Street firm at this time of the year. Cue the bonus noise. <laughs> but... What is unusual here is the profile of the kind of people leaving at a time when you would expect calm seas at a place like Goldman. So, Sri, when when so many high-profile people leave in such a short period of time, is there any concern about the type of message that that sends to the firm? Oh, absolutely. And, 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 and the way it's done, in the case of Karen Seymour, she's leaving after three years, which might seem like she's been there for a while, but you typically just do not see great 
turnover in a seat like that, a general counsel role at a firm like Goldman Sachs, is one of the most plum assignments, but also one of the most challenging assignments in, 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 in the corporate world uh, when it comes to legal jobs. Her predecessor was in that seat for 26 years. Well, that might have been unusually long. Uh, Karen Seymour is out in three years because this role is tied to who the chief executive officer prefers, and the sense that we are getting is he wanted to install his own person, which is why Karen Seymour is leaving Goldman Sachs. But look at some of the other departures. Mm -hmm. Uh, The head of Goldman's Consumer Bank, that is the big new fledgling business at Goldman Sachs on which they have pinned their future. They have said it will become a very part of what Goldman Sachs will be in the future. So it's not a good look when the head of that business leaves and a top uh, deputy of his, who are two of the four partners in the business. The only one left is an executive who joined three weeks ago and another one who was already moved into this chairman sort of role because he was the original face of Marcus. And then you have the asset management head. That is another big focus area for Goldman Sachs under David Solomon. And just six months ago, he promoted Eric Lane to co-head this expanded asset management business. Surely he would not have expected that he would get up and leave. And he has done just that. And not to retire or go off into the sunset, but go and work at a large investment right. firm this this big investing whale out there, which is Chase Coleman's Tiger Global. Right. It's not like they're buying a big sailboat and sailing the world. Um, so Anders Mellon, come on in, because you've got a great story on the Bloomberg about Wall Street poaching going on by fintech and the fun world. Talk, like kind of broaden this out here. What are we seeing? Because it does feel like a lot of people are leaving those plum jobs on Wall Street to go to startups or to start up a business for a Walmart. Yeah, so like like Sri is saying, you know, partly this might be chalked up to a bit of shuffling that happens after bonus season. But what people that I spoke to yesterday also told me is that it's it's sort of indicative of the just a mess of, of ripe opportunities that are to be had by top people, especially if you are specialized in areas like fintech or crypto or something that has a heavy financial component to it in, in terms of tech. And there's a lot of money sloshing around to lure them away. So um, obviously a prominent example that Sri mentioned is Omar Ismail who left um, Goldman's consumer bank, uh, Marcus, uh, to lead a new Walmart venture that we don't know a ton about yet. Um, but clearly a, a, an interesting opportunity, I'm sure, for him to build something that has uh, the backing and the resources by a brand of Walmart and then potentially the ability to touch tens of millions of customers through the stores that that, um, that Walmart has. And Goldman Sachs, as we know, don't really have that kind of footprint. So what does a company like Goldman Sachs have to do in order to retain top talent? So yeah, that's also something I ask people, and it's you know it, it's it's a little tough. Um, one thing that was pointed out to me was that you know this decisions like this isn't necessarily about money; it's about building new things. You get to be part of of, of making a big impact. But in these situations, you know, money tends to not be an issue until it is an issue. Right. Um, there's a lot of money sloshing around, and 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 in new ventures like this. Perhaps at, at Walmart, you tend to be able to sometimes see creations of special classes of stock in privately held ventures or profit sharing plans that can be extremely lucrative. It can be a bit controversial to set something like that up at a, at a big public company where you have a, a publicly traded stock and, and that can create some discord internally. Right. So 
money could be be a factor, that's for sure. But it is an opportunity to lead something and kind of that's all your own. Hey, Shri, last question. Um, does David Solomon need to be worried at all? Are people questioning like, hey, David, what's going on at Goldman? Just quickly. One would have to assume that shouldn't be the case, right? Okay. You, you've just come off of 2020 when, uh, uh, let's be honest, the pandemic slump for, slump for most people proved to be extremely profitable for Goldman Sachs. But at the same time, you had a slew of departure. And Carol, you and I have talked about this uh, mm-hmm. so many times in the past, in the first couple of years of David Solomon's uh, reign as the CEO, and that was chalked up to regime change. When you have a new management, people of the old guard are automatically flushed out, and that is to be expected. Right. But then what explains what's been happening over the last three months? Even before uh, this little chunk of uh, exits that we've heard about just in this past uh, three or four days, we had Greg Lemka, the well-liked investment bank boss at Goldman, leaving. And he went to work at another firm. That was totally unexpected. And that has started with people. So these moves are certainly reverberating inside the firm. Yeah. As long as the money is good and the stock is doing well, it isn't a problem. But when the good times end on that front, yeah. all attention will focus to uh, what's happening with your workforce. Goldman shares up 26% so far this year. All right, Sri Natarajan, finance reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you. And our thanks to Anders Mellon, wealth reporter at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. So in this week's Bloomberg Business Week, Small Business Survival Guide, a story about a small business owner helping other small businesses. More specifically, we're talking about a Minneapolis distillery. It's owned by Chris Montana. He has been on the front line of the dual pandemic of COVID and racism. Chris is the owner of Du Nord Craft Spirits, and he joins us on the phone from Minneapolis, along with Bloomberg Business Week contributor Nick Leiber, who wrote the story. He joins us on the phone in Brooklyn. And Nick, first of all, I have to tell you, we've been talking about Chris in the newsroom. We feel like this guy has just done so much good. How did Chris come to your attention? You know, I was very curious about how businesses are faring in the in the recovery or the sort of uneven recovery of small businesses. And I reached out to Chris, and he was kind enough to talk to me about um, everything he's been up to, which is a lot. But I was surprised by what, you know, by his story. I didn't realize how much he was doing. Um, and he, you know, he's he, he's sort of given dozens and dozens of grants to local um, local mainstays in the community, local businesses. He set up a food bank, um, and he has this vision for an incubator um, that I think is really interesting. Hey, Chris, come on in here. Uh, take us back to just about a year ago when the pandemic hit. What did you have to do? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, ages ago, but right when the pandemic uh, hit, we the first step was uh, our staff uh, didn't feel safe. And so our business model at that point was we got most of our revenue from a cocktail room and uh, less so in distribution. It's very hard for small companies to make money in distribution. And so we decided to shut down the cocktail room. And with that, we kissed goodbye to most of our revenue. And, you know, we're a small 100% family owned. It's my wife and I company and we really we thought that was the end um and but the thing that that we did have is we had some booze laying around we knew that there wasn't enough hand sanitizer and so we decided that we'd take what we had we'd make some sanitizer and we'd give it away to first responders and other people who needed it well and i i mentioned on the introduction chris that you were really dealing with the dual pandemic because first the pandemic hits 
And then, of course, what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis, which we all saw. And we've talked often here at Bloomberg about kind of the dual pandemic of health crisis and also racism uh, across our society. You actually took a blow as a result of it because of the protests and the violence that happened in Minneapolis, um, something that happened to your warehouse. Yeah, I mean, we we had some damage. We had some folks break in and uh, set some fires uh, in our in our warehouse, and you know, it took out you know our a lot of inventory, and we had some machines in there. We had mistakenly thought that that would be the safer place. So beforehand, we had moved a lot of things into the warehouse, thinking that would make them safer than the other side of the building, which had a lot of windows. Um, and you know, and that, that's unfortunate, and I, I, mm-hmm. it was very hard. I'm not I'm not going to try to paper over that at all. I mean, it, I I definitely shed more than <laughs> more tears than I have in a very long time. It's hard to watch something that yeah. you've worked on uh, burn. Uh, but oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Well, I was going to say, Nick, what is it that you you wanted to find out about Chris? Um, I I was I was curious how you sort of how you reinvent something in in the midst of also trying to make have your business be able to survive and this idea of you know sort of stepping back for a second and saying what 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 does my community need as opposed to what does my business need um was was something that that Chris sort of taught me about and, and, and Chris, you recognized what your community needed. You raised hundreds of thousands of dollars in a GoFundMe. Um, but what did you do with it? Well, we, we didn't think we were going to raise as much money. Um, and this really started because people were raising money for us. And we had some insurance. and We didn't want to get a windfall from this. And so we set out to raise $30,000. And then we ended up raising a million bucks. And what we did with it, is we created a foundation. That foundation had three goals. One was to run this food bank because we had food insecurity. But the second one, where most of the money went, uh, was to grants to other small businesses because many, particularly black and brown-owned businesses, uh, they were uninsured or underinsured, and it would be a double injustice if George Floyd would be murdered. And in the aftermath, we would also lose the few businesses that we had that were starting to bring the business community to black and brown communities. And so we gave out grants up to $15,000. We helped out 74 different businesses, many of whom are back up today. It's so great. And I know you're you're trying to buy and renovate a big building to serve as an incubator for nascent entrepreneurs to use rent-free to launch food and beverage businesses. Man, you are giving back on multiple levels. Um, It's really wonderful and an honor to talk with you, Chris. And we really wish you well. And Nick, thank you so much for bringing the story to us. And I highly recommend folks, we'll put it out on Twitter, but go to Bloomberg.com for more. Nick Leiber, contributor of Bloomberg Business Week with us from Brooklyn. And Chris Montana, owner of Do Nord Craft Spirits, on the phone from Minneapolis. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
All right, so it is the drive to the close. Just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Bouncing around, uh, Tim, uh, higher, lower, higher, lower, uh, back and forth. Right now, as John Tucker mentioned, down about 21 points on the S&P, a decline of about 76 points on the Dow. That's just a quarter of a percentage point lower. Uh, S&P down about half a percent. NASDAQ, though, those tech names continuing to take the most heat, down about 1.4%, 194 points. But I think it's safe to say we continue to have these conversations about overvaluation, uh, taking a little money off the table when it comes to the na these names. But even when that happens, it seems like investors often have a tendency to come back in when they can get in at a lower price point. Yeah, that's kind of what we have been seeing over the past few weeks. Mm -hmm. Buy the dip. Investors don't want to miss out on what we saw over the last few months, and they see any opportunity, especially with the high-flying tech companies, to come in when there is any sort of decline. And I think it'll be interesting as we go along further, as we continue to see, and fingers crossed that the economy continues to gain more ground, we get to see, we'll get a big number on Friday, the monthly jobs report. It's backwards looking, but it gives us a good gut check on where we are in the U.S. labor market if we continue to see that repairing, fingers crossed, because there are still millions out of work at this point. And whether or not we continue to see certainly the equity trade evolve, we keep talking about the reflation trade as uh, investors are looking into those sectors of the economy that will do better as the economy does better. So let's broaden out and talk a little bit about the market. Yeah, Ron Carson is chief executive officer of the Carson Group, joining us on the phone from Scottsdale, Arizona. The Carson Group has more than $13 billion in assets under management. Hey, Ron, uh, great to have you on the show. What are you keeping an eye on in today's market? Well, I think it's interesting, you know, the volatility in the market um, uh, is what we've grown used to. But what's really impressive is this economy. I mean, we are clearly we've got profits back above pre-COVID levels or pre-pandemic levels. Um, we have, you know, Q1 is probably going to come in GDP around 10 percent. That's the best. That's almost I started in the business in 1983. On top of that, but it's a bounce back. It's a bounce back, it's right? Bounce we have to be smart yeah. about how we read that number. Okay. And, and it's, a, it's a bounce back, but there's a lot of stimulus that's continuing to come. And we have the 1.9 trillion fiscal. We, you know, on behind that, we've got a two trillion dollar infrastructure spend that I think will juice the economy for some time. And then on top of that, um, this the pent up demand. I mean, the amount of money the consumer has saved. Currently, Americans have almost. $4 trillion, not $2.5 trillion more than we had you know, prior to um, uh, the pandemic. And so what I'm, what I'm really watching is inflation. We, yeah. we saw interest rates really move up. Um, we've had Powell signal we're going to be ultra dovish. I mean, he basically said full employment, 2% average, not 2% inflation, 2% average. So that means it's got to happen over a period of time. And then we have to have projections showing Two percent or more. So we've got the Fed definitely in here, going to support the market. We've got the average consumer has got a ton of cash. They've had nowhere to spend it. They've got a lot of desire to spend it. And so, if I wanted to really pick something to worry about, I think we're headed for you know some real inflation in the future. You know, it, it, it's so interesting. You talk about how strong the economy is and how strong you project it to be. Because yes, we we do see a recovery happening in stocks. That happened. Corporate profits are, are are strong as we're learning from earnings, but there are still millions of Americans who are unemployed right now. Um, that has a serious economic effect. It does. We have 10 million people that are unemployed, and I I I believe. And when we 
especially as the economy is starting to open up, I think we just had Texas come out and said, hey, we're going to lift the mask mandate um, in our own community in Omaha, Nebraska, and I'm out in Arizona right now. I mean, people are starting to live again, and I think we're going to start seeing job creation. And, you know, when you look at the infrastructure spend that the you know, current administration is going to, I believe, going to get through, that's going to that's going to mean a lot of jobs you know, over the next decade. So um, I think I think and, and not to mention, I think another piece that's being missed here is this massive shift to a digital economy. Mm. And there's going to be a handful of people that are going to try to hold on to those, you know, call them old world jobs. that just aren't going to translate. Uh, into the future. So there's also going to need to be an element of retraining in here. Well, that's a good point. I feel like we've been talking about retraining, though, for a long time as the economy and the world continues to innovate and we continue to see disruption. How uncomfortable that might that make, though, the economy as we see that kind of dislocation? Carol, I think it's very uncomfortable. And I've witnessed it, you know, in my own life, um, grew up in a farm and watched farming. The farmers have to make that transition, which was a very difficult transition. And then, you know, if you look at the, you know, the, the old skills that you had to have as a worker versus what you have to have today. And when we were handling rollovers for a lot of people that were getting, you know, their jobs eliminated, they really just didn't have the skills for the next job. It's uncomfortable, but it's a reality. I mean, mm. change is like, and if you're not prepared for it, um, we, adaptability is going to be key as we move forward as a society into the future. We're going to have to be more adaptable than we've ever been in the past. Well, a couple of companies that you're keeping an eye on that you are bullish on include Microsoft and United Healthcare. Uh, let's talk Microsoft here. Uh, why is there still room for Microsoft to go higher? Yeah, you know, Microsoft with a $1.6 trillion market cap, they, we're, I was just talking about this a few days ago. You know, we use um, you know, Microsoft Office Teams, you know, they, it's enabled the company to really transition from the heart of operations to a launch pad for, you know, their enterprise cloud workflows, Azure. And you talk about um, a company that has adapted, you know, look at Microsoft. I mean, they've gone, they're, they're, to me, they've, they've appleized, right, the things that they do. They've made them so simple that anybody can, can use them and be productive. And we've seen a tremendous productivity lift even in our own organization through Microsoft. So we think that um, they're going to take advantage of that. And the shift to the cloud computing is going to drive even greater business efficiency in the future. So we're bullish on Microsoft. And, and you're I just quickly, 20 seconds here, you're comfortable with the levels? I mean, it had quite a run last year. It had quite quite a long run there, Carol. But I think what we're what the market's having a hard time catching up to right. is what we thought would take a couple of years, half or in a decade, happened literally in a year. Yeah, you know, with the migration to the digital world. Yeah, it, I think Microsoft is in the center of that. Yeah, there's those companies that you know are in the spot of right as things you know pick up a lot of momentum in terms of those changing trends. If they're in the right place, right, they're just going to benefit from it. Yeah, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, Netflix. Right, right those momentum. You you know, plays that everybody gets a little concerned about. All right, Ron Carson, thank you so much. CEO of Carson Group uh, on the phone from Scottsdale. Lovely Scottsdale. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.